0: The last several months we've been in this series called Jesus is Greater, Finding Hope in Life Struggles. We've been covering these different topics, like doubt and anger and forgiveness and temptation, areas in which we all struggle. Last week I spoke about fear. spoke about fear. And I distinguished three types of fear. Natural fear, a God-given emotion that God puts in our hearts to protect us from harmful situations like a dangerous animal or being on the edge of a cliff. Holy fear is the fear that God puts in our hearts as well and commands us to uh, fear Him. We'll talk more about that in a little while here. Sinful fear is the distortion of that natural fear and focuses on things that should not be feared, namely other people, other people. it's important to point out that when I say fear in this context of sinful fear, I'm speaking more than just saying being afraid of someone physically harming us. As I read last week in his book, When When People Are Big and God Is Small, Ed Welch says, quote, Fear in the biblical sense is a much broader word. It includes being afraid of someone, but it extends to holding someone in awe being controlled or mastered by people, worshipping other people, putting your trust in people. End quote. So biblically speaking, fear does include physical harm, but it also includes a variety of other ways that we feel threatened and controlled by other people. We long for other people to approve us so deeply, and we fear their rejection. That it controls our lives. We regard people the way we should regard God. The fear of man becomes a substitute for the fear of God. God did not design us to live this way. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Isn't that a great verse? God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. But we often fall prey to that temptation, this sinful fear of fearing other people. Because we want their approval and we want their acceptance and we're so worried about what they'll think of us. And it controls our lives. And we looked at biblical examples of even heroes of the faith who fell prey to this temptation. We also went through some very practical ways that this fear shows up in our lives and even affects us in the Christian life, such as our fear of sharing our faith, our fear of using our spiritual gifts to build up the church, and other ways. So, where we left off last week was how do we overcome sinful fear? How do we overcome sinful fear? We know from what the Bible teaches that Scripture usually doesn't just say stop doing something. It says stop doing something, but it also says I want you to start doing something to replace it, right? We remove something and then we replace it with something else. And so we're going to explore that question today. And I want to offer two ways to overcome sinful fear. And I firmly believe that if we will grasp what was said here today and apply these truths in our lives, it will change your life. It will change your life. I'm not promising overnight, but as these truths of Scripture sink down into your heart and soul, they will change you to the glory of God. Amen. Do you believe that? So we will look at these two ways, and at the end, let's let's have some discussion. I know we've had some great, uh, you know, I don't say great messages, but great focuses on. These topics of anxiety and fear, and I'd like to kind of open it up here at the end that the Lord has spoken to your heart, and would like to share something here this morning. So the, the first way to overcome sinful fear is the fear of the Lord, is the fear of the Lord, what I earlier called holy fear. There may not be a more important expression in all of Scripture as the fear of the Lord, Just about every significant biblical character is said to either themselves that they fear God or they teach others to fear the Lord. So what exactly does that phrase mean, the fear of the Lord? Well, the phrase carries with it three key ideas that I want you to get. Three key ideas about the fear of the Lord. Wonder, dread, and reverence. Wonder, dread, and reverence. All right. So we should have wonder toward God. We should see God as powerful, majestic, and the One who has made all things. Psalm 33, listen to this, 8 and 9 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. For He spoke, speaking of creation, and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So the psalmist connects... That when humanity looks out into this created world, there should be a sense of wonder about what we see. A wonder, not just that creation is beautiful, but there is a Creator that should stir in us this fear slash wonder. You see that? So we should also have dread toward God. He is holy and pure and we are not. He holds our eternal destinies in His hands, And we might kick our feet and be mad about that all day long, but it doesn't change a thing. God is our judge. And that should cause a sense of dread Not an irrational dread, but just a recognition that He is judge over you. Psalm 90 verse 11 says, Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? Psalm 119 verse 120 says, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. So there is wonder, there's dread, and then there's reverence. We should have reverence toward God. And the fear of the Lord communicates this idea. And He alone is worthy of worship. You see, there might be some created things in the world that can stir in us a sense of wonder and stir in us even a sense of dread. I know when I went to Niagara Falls, I was blown away. It was wondrous this sight. And I also had a sense of dread knowing that I just fall right in. I'm done. There was a little bit of dread in me. But I had no reverence at all for the Niagara Falls. We should have reverence, though, toward God. Psalm 5, 7, listen to this, says, I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Do you see how he connects reverence and fear all together? So, the fear of the Lord puts together these three ideas of reverence, of wonder, of dread, and of reverence. It's all communicated. And so some passages, it might be more emphasis on one of these aspects. Sometimes maybe it's all of it put together. But that's what this idea communicates, this sense of fear of the Lord. It has this idea of wonder and dread and reverence. And this is the mindset that you see again and again in Scripture that the believer is supposed to have toward God. By the way, as a footnote, sometimes people think, well, this, that was in the Old Testament, right? It's different now in the New Testament. No, it hasn't changed a bit. It is used more in the Old Testament, but it's still expected of the people of God. For example, in Acts 9.31, gives this summary statement about the early church. It says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. Did you get that? It says the early church was walking in the fear of the Lord. That's a metaphor for their daily lives. Their Christian living was under the fear of the Lord. In 1 Peter 1.17, the apostle commands his readers to fear God. Paul does the same in 2 Corinthians 7.1. At the end of time, in Revelation 14.7, it says how an angel declares to all of the world to fear God. So nothing has changed. We are to fear God. Is everybody clear about that? Do you understand what it means? And do you understand that it's still binding on God's people today? So how does the fear of the Lord then relate to overcoming sinful fear? The fear of other people. Well, in essence, there's an inverse relationship. Inverse relationship between the fear of the Lord and the fear of people. The more you fear the Lord, the less you will fear other people. And the more you fear other people, the less you will fear the Lord. That's exactly what takes place. William Grinnell, uh, Said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. One fear cures another. So we must see and understand the fear of the Lord. And we need this because we have a tendency to make man really big and to make God small smaller than he really is. That's kind of our default mode. We get so worried about what Jack thinks over there, and we and we and God shrinks down in who he is, right? We need to go back again and again to who God is and think about how silly it is when we think about other people. Let me just do a quick comparison between God and us in case we need this reminder. God is eternal. We live 70 to 80 years on average. God is a necessary being. That means that he needs nothing to exist at all. We are what they call contingent beings. We need other things in order to survive, don't we? Air, water, heat, food, chocolate, so on, right? (laughs) To survive. Shouldn't have mentioned that now right before lunch. God is omnipresent. We occupy this one little spot, don't we? God is the Creator. He made the universe out of nothing. Everything in it, including us, He made us. We cannot do any of that. We can't make anything from nothing. And even our greatest accomplishments pale in comparison to what God has done. I was thinking about how... Really one of the crowning achievements I think of mankind is sending someone to the moon. I mean to me it blows me away. What how on earth did we ever do that? It's incredible. Do you think God was amazed by that? He gave us all the materials that we used to get there. He made up all the scientific laws that we finally discovered. And it was 239,000 miles. Again, a long distance for us. But let's get a reality check. Our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy alone, is estimated to be 100,000 light years big. Light year. Light travels at 186,000 miles per second. In one second, the the light goes around the Earth, what, seven or eight times or so? That's how fast light travels in one second. Can you imagine a whole year? Now, times that by 1,000, that's one light year. I'm sorry, that's the the Milky Way galaxy. Times that by 100,000, that's the Milky Way galaxy. Now, they were estimating the universe to be having about 100 to 200 billion galaxies. And I read the other day, now they're saying it might be 10 times more than that. Compared to God, we are truly nothing. I love what Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, 21-25. He says, "...do you not know, do you not hear? Has it not been told from you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is He who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers." who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when He blows on them, and they wither and and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like Him, says the Holy One. Scripture calls us grasshoppers. Write that down in your sermon notes. I am a grasshopper. (laughs) You (laughs) and me, we are all grasshoppers. Barack Obama is a grasshopper. Donald Trump. Is a grasshopper. You fill in the name, we are all grasshoppers. And moreover, the Lord not only rises up individuals and brings them down, but what did it say there? Whole kingdoms he raises up, he brings down. I love Psalm 2. It describes how the nations conspire against the Lord. And what does it say that the Lord does in response to their conspiracy? He laughs. You almost kind of picture in your mind's eye this huge bellowing laugh in the throne room of heaven as man tries to do our best to dethrone God. Please. It's preposterous. So in particular, kind of driving down here, the fear of the Lord I think should really... Reduce our, the, the fear that we have of the authority that people have in our lives over us. What I mean by that is say that the government has been given authority by God and we should obey the government and pay our taxes and, and that is good and that is a right thing to do. But we also always need to remember that the Lord is the one whom we are ultimately accountable to. He controls what happens to us and we will not live one second longer or shorter than what God has ordained. And so even if man wants to kill us, we should not fear them. Why? Well, on one hand, God often brings physical deliverance. God hears the prayers of His people and He responds and He delivers them from their enemies. He often does this. I love what Psalm 27, 1 and 2 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. David saw them himself in the Many times in his life, he didn't just have someone who might have had it out for him at school or in the workplace. He had people who were trying to kill him. But he trusted in the Lord, and the Lord brought deliverance to his life. Psalm 56, 3-4 to says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and my foes, it is they who stumble and fall. So if we pray, God will bring physical deliverance oftentimes. But on the other hand, God always brings spiritual deliverance. So even if we do die, we are with the Lord. We're with the Lord. Now I'm not saying you enjoy the process of death. There's nothing in that with Scripture. But we don't fear people because we know they cannot destroy the soul. No man has that authority. Only God has the authority as our ultimate judge. Luke 12, 4 and 5, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Yes, those words came out of the mouth of Jesus. He commands us not to fear those who kill the body only, but to fear the one who has the power to cast someone into hell forever. Friends, what matters is not what other people think about you. What matters is what God thinks about you. It doesn't matter what any one person thinks, or all the world together what they think. It only matters what God thinks of you. The fear of the Lord. When you fear the Lord, the fear of people is driven down. You say, well, how do I grow in the fear of the Lord? Well, I think it's vital that we read scripture to see who God is like. Why do I say that? Well, otherwise, we don't gravitate toward this view of God, do we? This almighty, mag- majestic God whom we should have wonder and dread and reverence toward. We like to pick and choose who we, what we think about God, right? That's our fundamental sin is idolatry, making God in our image. We need to be reminded of who God is, and the Word of God tells us who He is. And it's neat how Scripture itself connects reading Scripture with the fear of the Lord. In Deuteronomy 4, 9, and 10, Moses says to the nation of Israel, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children how on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, which is another name for Mount Sinai, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me that I, may learn, that, it, that I may let them hear my words so that they learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children also. Did you catch that connection? The word of God built up the fear of the Lord in them. Scripture teaches this. It's Scripture that teaches that God is our Creator. It's Scripture that teaches that He is our Judge. And it's Scripture that teaches that He is our Redeemer who loved us so much He was willing to die on the cross for us. Amen? So we've discussed the fear of the Lord as a way to overcome sinful fear, the fear of other people. What else? What else? Love others. Love others. Love others. Let me explain. I said last week, fear is a very powerful emotion. I think the second most powerful emotion we have is creatures. But love is more powerful. Love can overcome fear. Let me just give you a tangible example. 2009, a woman named Maureen Lee was hiking with her three-year-old daughter named Maya. All of a sudden, a cougar pounced on Maya. What did that mom do? She wedged herself between that cougar and Maya and hurled the cougar off. She picked up Maya and ran to a nearby house, and thankfully Maya only had some cuts uh, on her arm and her head. I am sure that that mom was afraid of that cougar. Who would not be in their right mind? But what compelled her to do what she did? Love for that child. If she was by herself, she would have never approached that cougar, would she? But when her child was in danger, she leapt instinctively into action because love cast out fear. And Scripture affirms this reality. 1 John 4.18 is an important verse in this discussion. It says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. 1 John 4.18 now the context of this verse focuses on the judgment of God. Because God loves us, we don't need to fear God. And let me clarify, not in the sense that a different way that we were just talking about. He's not saying you don't fear God, but he's saying we don't need to fear God in this sort of unbiblical, irrational sense that we're worried about God judging us one day. We know, as Romans 8 1 says, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, right? So because of God's love for us, we don't have to worry about judgment on judgment day. God's love has cast out that fear that we might have. And though this verse speaks about God, I think there is an excellent principle that relates to you and I. Love casting out fear. So practically speaking, here's what happens when love casts out fear. Your love of others drives out your fear of others. You choose to serve and bless others rather than to worry about what they think of you. You choose to be a people lover, not a people pleaser. Friends, we've got to reverse how we think. We've got to reverse how we think. So so follow this. When we fear others, typically we're consumed with ourselves rather than the other person. I know that might sound contradictory, but think about it. If you're afraid of some person, what's really going on is not so much you're afraid of that person. I'm not talking about a life and death situation. I'm just talking about normal sort of -of run-of-the-mill life. It's not so much that you're, you're afraid of that person. You're consumed by your own things that are going on in your mind. What will they say about me? What will they think about me? What will they do to me? How will I appear to other people if I approach that person or if they approach me? You're consumed in your own mind with the situation. When we're controlled by a sinful fear of others, we are too focused on ourselves. Too selfish and too prideful. Let me walk through an example. Why do we avoid other people in life? Again, everyday life. I'm not talking about you running from your life from some attacker. Everyday life. Usually it is out of a fear of rejection of some sort. We avoid people sometimes because they're different than us. Maybe they're a lot older than us. A lot younger than us. A different race than us. We fear speaking to them, I don't think, not so much because they're different than us. For a lot of people, that's an attractive thing. But it's more likely that they will reject us, because there's some maybe natural barriers there. Are you following with me? That's why we cling to people who are just like us, because there's not those barriers. Or we avoid others because we think they're above us in some capacity. We look at that person and say, oh, they're smarter, they're wealthier, they're more attractive, their personalities are more charismatic, or whatever it might be. And if we talk to them, we will be nervous that they will reject us. Or they will look down on us. Or we avoid others because we think they're beneath us. If we talk to them then others around us might see us talking to that person, and then they will think less of us for talking to that person. Or we avoid others because we fear that if, we get to, if they get to know us, they're going to see our weak spots, and we'll be exposed. We won't be the person that we paint to them. It always comes back to sinful fear. We focus on ourselves and how we will be rejected rather than how I can love others. Love cast out fear. Now someone might say, "Why, well, I, I, I fear others, because maybe I don't know what to say." Well granted, like any skill, some people are more naturally adept than others. Some people in this room have never met a stranger. You're just very good, maybe at communicating and talking. But everyone can grow in their skills if they will admit and try to get past their fear of rejection. There's an interesting, an interesting scene in the famous novel Pride and Prejudice between the main characters, Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth Bennett. My wife will be proud of me for referencing this novel. Miss <laughs> Bennett is playing the piano. And she's good at it, but she's not great, which she recognizes herself. And in the midst of talking, she points out that when she first met Mr. Darcy, how he was standoffish with new people at the ball where they first met. Here's what goes on in their conversation. I certainly have not the talent which some people possess, said Darcy, of conversing easily with those I have never seen before. I cannot catch their tone of conversation or appear interested in their concerns, as I often seem done. My finger, said Elizabeth, do not move over this instrument in the masterly manner which I see many women's do. They have not the same force or rapidity and do not produce the same expression. But then I've always supposed it to be my own fault because I would not take the trouble of practicing it is not that I do not believe my fingers as capable as any other women's of superior execution. So her point was that her skill in playing the piano was deficient because of her lack of practice. Likewise, Darcy's skill in speaking to others was deficient because of his lack of practice. So when we attribute fear just to say to a lack of, I don't know what to say, a lack of skill. Let's also make sure that we're not really just hiding behind a fear of rejection. We must choose to love others and overcome fear. I like what Jay Adams says. He says, love is self-giving. Fear is self-protecting. Love moves toward others Fear shrinks away from them. But love is the stronger since it is able to cast out fear. In dealing with fear, nothing else possesses the same expulsive power. Isn't that wonderful? As you think about your life, and you think about perhaps where you are fearful of other people, Have you considered about the fact that love has the ability to cast out fear? And that as you look at someone, instead of being so concerned what they might think of you or what they might do to you, if you would change your mindset to how I can love that person, how I can serve that person, it will drive away all fear. And I truly believe that's how God wants His people to live. To not be dominated by the fear of man, but to be dominated by a love of our neighbor, that we would want to treat our neighbor as ourself. Has that hit home with someone today? Let me close by going to Christ. You know, we've been saying throughout this whole series that Jesus is greater. And you see, it is by Jesus I think that all these great truths come together. He really is the foundation and centerpiece. Because of Jesus, we have nothing to fear as a Christian. Jesus conquered the judgment of God. That's the, that is the most fearful thing in the universe is the judgment of God. Think about Jesus' life. When he was ministering, nothing faced this man, right? Demon-possessed people coming to him. No problem. Crowds, hostile crowds, no problem. Lies and plots against Him, no problem. But there was one time when Jesus was greatly disturbed. I, could say, I think you could say He was fearful, not in a sinful way, but he, just, he dreaded what He was about to face. And what was that? That was the cross. He dreaded what He was about to face on the cross. It says in Mark 14.33 in Gethsemane that He took with Him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Jesus went to the cross knowing what He was about to face, knowing His judgment that He was going to experience on our behalf, and He dreaded it. But because He loved us so much, He was willing to go to the cross so that you and I would not have to face that judgment. It's a perfect example of love, casting out fear, and going to the cross for you and I. We should have no more fear of that as God's people. Amen? God's people should no longer fear death. That's something that many people carry around with this profound fear of death. Jesus has given us reason for hope. When He died and rose again, He showed that death is not the final period there. It's a comma, right? Jesus reigns. He rules. And it gives us hope that when we die, we will go to be with the Lord. And one day when Christ returns, He's going to raise up His people and give us new resurrection bodies. So have you embraced Jesus today? He is greater than all these things we've been talking about. Have you realized your need to ask forgiveness of sins and place your faith and trust that you know God is a God who judges? You know that you've sinned, but there is hope in the cross and you're looking today at the cross and you're finding your hope and trust in Jesus. Let it be the day of salvation. And once that is the case, as God's people, He will help you to overcome your fear of people. God gives us a new heart and empowers us to love others. 1 John 4.19 says, We love because He first loved us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your... So clear and precise teaching that you give us about what we need in our lives to overcome sinful fear. Lord, to pray that you would teach us to fear you and the way that we have heard the word explained this morning with a sense of wonder, a sense of dread, and a sense of reverence. Lord, it is truly the case that if we will fear you, we will not fear anything else. And God, I also pray that you would expand our hearts to love our neighbors as ourselves. That when we look around this room or we go out into the world, that we would not see people that we worship or that control us, or that we put our trust in, or that we fear, Lord, that we would see image bearers whom you have called us to love and to not be tossed around by various fears that we have in our hearts. Lord, I pray if there's someone here today who has lived a life that is really in bondage to fear in various ways, that, Lord, they would see that there is truly hope in overcoming the fear of judgment the fear of death, the fear of other people as they come to the cross humbly and acknowledge you as Lord and Savior. God, we thank you for this time. We pray you would bless us now as we have opportunity to share and encourage each other in the Word as a body. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.